Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today's episode features a conversation hosted recently by the Digital Public Library of America, the DPLA. The DPLA brings together many collections of America's libraries, archives, and museums and makes them freely available to the world on a shared platform. In this DPLA book talk, it features a conversation on trust and the crisis faced by our institutions, the promise of the movements rising to challenge them, and the obstacles we might confront if we are to rebuild civic life and create meaningful change. It features Ethan Zuckerman, Catherine Marr, and Alberto Ibarguen. Ethan Zuckerman is an associate professor of public policy, communication, and information at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and is the founder of the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure, a research group that is studying and building alternatives to the existing commercial internet. He's the author of two books, Mistrust, Why Losing Faith in Institutions Provides the Tools to Transform Them, and Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Mistrust, published in November 2020, looks at how and why Americans are losing faith in institutions and how we can harness the methods of successful social movements to transform and replace them. The book serves as the basis for today's discussion. Catherine Marr was the CEO of the Wikimedia Foundation until the spring, when she stepped down after a long and successful tenure. The foundation operates Wikipedia and the Wikimedia Projects. She's a longtime advocate for free and open societies and has worked around the world, leading the integration of technology and innovation and human rights, good governance, and international development. Alberto Ibarguen, who moderates the discussion, is president and CEO of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. He is the former publisher of the Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald, and during his tenure, the Miami Herald won three Pulitzer Prizes, and El Nuevo Herald won Spain's Ortega y Gasset Prize for Excellence in Journalism. Here's Alberto, where we pick up the conversation He's talking about the concept of trust. It is the central issue of media, which is an important subject for, uh, for night. this issue of trust and mistrust. You cannot possibly run, I think, a democracy without, uh, without trusting, without trusting in information, without having an informed, a reasonably and consistently well-informed citizenry <clears throat> that has sources of information it can trust and that has institutions that it can trust uh, to run uh, what is, after all, uh, a type of government that is built essentially on trust. It, it doesn't work if there isn't trust in fellow citizens, if there isn't trust in information, and if there isn't trust in the institutions. Um, Ethan describes himself toward the end of the book, actually, as a as a resurrectionist about uh, institutions, not as an institutionalist or or, a, or as an insurrectionist, but as a resurrectionist. And I think it's it's worth the read to get to why. There are lots of questions that are raised in here, lots of questions about about organizations, lots of questions about the the leaving. Uh, ceding public functions to private actors and lots of contradictions because in so many ways I come from a, an industry that was a private industry to which the constitution cedes the freedom of the press. The, the, it, it formally cedes to a private entity or to a private set of entities uh, a function that is absolutely essential for the functioning of government. Anyhow, there are lots of questions in here. Uh, we want to first hear from Ethan, uh, then we'll hear from Catherine. Uh, so, Ethan, let's start with you, and then uh, we'll move to Catherine, and then uh, some more discussion. Well, Alberto, thank you so much. And uh, it's always wonderful when someone in introducing you quotes the last chapter of your book. It's a good indication that they actually read it rather than just sort of skimming the first few pages. I'm always... I have many other markers here. I, 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 I appreciate it. And I, and I knew that you would. I, I should actually say, Alberto, that, that this book is, is really, um, in many ways, a, a direct response to you. And it's a direct response in the sense that about 10 years ago, Alberto called me up what accidentally turned out to be very late night in London around 3 a.m. 
and said, would you mind moving to MIT uh, and taking over this project called the Center for Civic Media? And I did because people don't give you offers like that very often. But I very quickly found myself in this position of running this research lab with a distinct challenge from Alberto to think about how this new generation of people creating media were going to revitalize the whole field of journalism, which I agree with him is utterly critical for involvement in a free and open society. And I started exploring this idea that maybe part of what was wrong with journalism in America at this particular moment was that it was not helping us become effective civic actors. It was allowing us to be very informed spectators, but it wasn't necessarily pushing us to be engaged and effective as civic actors. So I challenged Alberto with this. He pushed back. We found ourselves in sort of debates over the course of multiple years But what it did is it really forced me to sort of poke at this question. What does it mean to be an effective civic actor in the world right now? I was surrounded by these remarkable students at the MIT Center for Civic Media who were deeply committed to this idea that through technology, through social media, through innovation, they could have a positive impact on the world. At the same time, these same students were deeply skeptical about the sort of standard institutions and instruments of democracy. The idea that electing someone else to Congress was going to radically change progress around an issue like community policing or uh, student debt was sort of literally unbelievable to them. They simply didn't buy that that was how change happened. And so I've been fortunate enough to spend the last 20 years or so thinking about social change, particularly from the philanthropic point of view, and realized that an enormous amount of what I had learned about theories of social change came directly from the civil rights movement of the 1960s. This idea that passionate people would use a combination of protest and media to sway the government at a federal level, either through legislation or the judiciary to accomplish major social change. And for whatever reason, my students knew this history as well, and they just didn't buy it. They just didn't buy that this would or could happen. And so I started to try to ask this question, how did we end up at this point? How did we end up Um, with people who were deeply engaged with civics. They weren't disinterested. They were often very effective in making social change, but they were doing it really differently than the models of the past. And I started looking at this question of what was different between the contemporary world and the assumptions sort of going into the world in the mid-1960s at the peak of the civil rights movement. One of the things that really struck me was this change in American opinions about institutions. If you surveyed Americans in the mid-1960s and said, do you trust the government to do the right thing all or most of the time, 77% of Americans would say, yep, trust the government all or most of the time. If you ask that same question to Americans right now, fewer than 15% will tell you that they trust the government all or most of the time. That may seem obvious, right? You know, we've just gone through a president who in many ways spent four years telling us not to trust him or trust the government, uh, theorizing a a, a deep state and stolen elections. We know that there's uh, a wealth of fake news and online manipulation. Of, of, Of course we don't trust anything. The truth is these problems go much further back. Actually, there's a first collapse in institutional trust in America in the 1970s. And this is triggered by Vietnam, it's triggered by Watergate, it's triggered by economic stagnation uh, under Jimmy Carter's presidency. That number of 77% people trusting the government has fallen to 26% by the end of the Carter presidency. Then we run through the the sort of Reagan-Thatcher era where we have government saying, don't trust us. We're not very good at this. Hand everything over to the market. Once we sort of get through those two waves, 
now we have this media wave. We have this highly partisan media. We have participatory media starting to come online. We have far more information that people can use to sort of build up mistrust. So the story of how we end up in this position of very high mistrust is complicated. It's not just one factor. In many cases, it has to do with the genuine failure of institutions. If you look at how much Americans trust banks, it changes radically after the economic collapse of 2007, 2008. If you look at trust in the church, it has an enormous amount to do with the Catholic church sex scandal uh, and the reporting from the Boston Globe and others to reveal that. The net of this is that we are now at a point where many Americans and frankly, many people in mature democracies don't think that the institutions that govern society are working extremely well for them. At the most extreme, you can see this in studies like the one uh, that uh, Yasha Monk and Stefan Foa have published called Deconsolidating Democracy, where they use data to demonstrate that younger people don't feel like it's necessary to live in a democracy, even if their parents did. So as we get to generations born in the 1930s, 1940s, 80% say it's essential to live in a democracy. You get to the 1970s when I'm born, you know, 19, 50%, you get even younger than that. And you sometimes have 30 or 40% of people saying it's essential to live in a democracy. This strongly suggests that something about the current institutional landscape is not working well for the people who are living within it. So my hope in this book was really to try to answer the question, if people don't feel like institutions are responsible, that they're representing them well, that they're capable of making substantial change, what can you do to remain engaged as a citizen? And I end up really positing two things. The first thing I end up positing is that we may need to recognize that there's a much broader toolkit for social change than we sometimes acknowledge. We tend to privilege social change that tries to pass laws. And there's nothing wrong with passing laws. It's wonderful if we can find a way to do something like legalize equal marriage um, for homosexual couples. Um, we've accomplished it at the federal level. It gets carried out by the rest of the government. It's clearly a great achievement and a great way to deal with that social issue. But it's also possible to make change through working in the market. Uh, and that might be creating new products that radically transform uh, a, a social or, or an environmental issue. Uh, I think rooftop solar panels, I think electric cars are actually a lovely way of sort of thinking about how economics comes into play on this. It turns out that you can make social change through technology. I end up talking in the book about the normalization of encryption uh, and the way in which surveillance by the NSA and other groups has been countered by strong encryption coming out in tools like Signal and having it be incorporated within WhatsApp. And then I talk a lot about the ways in which people try to change social norms, which is incredibly important behind some of the most important social movements today, including Black Lives Matter and Me Too. These movements may want to change some laws, but more than anything, what they're really trying to change is perceptions, attitudes, social norms behind it. The other thing I think that people need to take very seriously is their relationship towards institutions. There are a lot of different ways of thinking about how to deal with a broken institution. For starters, you can go into that institution and try to bring it back to its core values. I look at uh, Larry Krasner, uh, who is the DA in Philadelphia, who has gone in and said, look, too often the public prosecutor's job is putting people in prison. Our job actually needs to be justice. And justice might be restorative justice. We try to figure out how to help the person who was harmed in a theft. And that's our main focus, not incarceration. It might be deferment into drug treatment programs. It might be community reconciliation of one fashion or another, but our metrics have to change. We have to take the prosecutor and turn it from being about putting black and brown men in, disproportionately in prison and into trying to figure out how we increase justice in the community. 
I call people like that radical institutionalists. They're going back to the basis of their institution and bringing it back to the core values. I also end up celebrating people who stand outside institutions and buttress them by pressuring them. And this is in many ways what the press does is its best. It holds those institutions responsible. It tries to make them stronger through the pressure. It's also something that citizens do incredibly well through acts of documentation. Uh, and I trace some of that history of watching the police black to the Black Panthers and the ways in which it became sort of central to their ideology around policing the police. And then finally, I get interested in this idea when an institution just is not working, can we come in and reimagine it? Can we try to rebuild something stronger in the wake of it? I think that's an idea um, that's gonna be incredibly important as we think about the criminal justice system, particularly in the wake of George Floyd, it's quite clear that in many communities in America, this is an institution that has lost the trust of the people that it needs to serve. It needs to be reimagined and it needs to be recreated in a way that the community is part of it and has a hand in its recreation and really gets the chance to shape it. And so the book ends up as Alberto said, with this idea that you don't want to live in a world without institutions. I think we've all just found during the pandemic how incredibly important it has been to have institutions that can make intelligent decisions about ordering people to wear masks and to social distance and to use vaccines. In fact, if anything, we may have found ourselves looking for stronger and more robust institutions. But as I think about this question of how do we build institutions that are flexible enough, they don't calcify and sort of hold on to their power, they try to evolve over time and they try to learn from inclusion. That's in part why I was so excited about having this conversation with Catherine Marr, because I feel like Wikipedia is actually an exemplar of that sort of institution. One of the biggest lessons I got in researching and writing this book is that people's trust in institutions is proportional to their understanding and involvement with those institutions. If you want to take someone who believes that U.S. elections are rigged, one of the best things you can do is to get them to work as a poll worker. Uh, because you start seeing how complex and intricate the system is, and frankly, just how hard it would be to rig it. And there's a number of examples of people aligned with different conservative militias who went and became poll watchers and came out of it sort of going, well, maybe the problem wasn't at my poll, maybe it was somewhere else, but at least having some increased confidence within the system. I talk about uh, an Italian innovator, a wonderful young guy named Luigi Reggi, who started something called Monathon. It's this program that gets high school students to go out and monitor the spending and the practice of locally publicly funded institutions. And everyone starts from this point of skepticism and then fairly quickly comes around and says, actually, now that I understand this, I'm really impressed with how well this money is being spent and being used. For me, the institution that I think has found one of the most astounding ways of, of being inclusive and being participatory is Wikimedia, which has invited people to be participatory on virtually any level, even if it's you know correcting spelling errors, all the way up to trying to figure out how to involve yourself within the governance of this. And so part of why I was so excited about doing this as a paired conversation, I came out of this book as an enthusiastic fan of institutions that build themselves so that they can be transformed over time and that build themselves so that they can learn from their communities and evolve with them. I think we need a world of robust institutions, but I think those institutions are the ones that have to earn our trust. I can't think of a better example of that than Wikimedia, which has gone from being the punchline of jokes about believability and accuracy to being now what companies like Google rely on as the factual anchor um, to debunk conspiracy theory videos. So that's a little bit on where I was going with the mistrust book, the ways in which I have been um, trying to respond to sort of Alberto's challenges of uh, civic engagement and revitalization, uh, but more than anything, why I'm so thrilled to be uh, passing the mic over to my friend, Catherine Marr, who's done just 
such remarkable work uh, in her leadership of, of Wikimedia and given us an institution uh, that I just deeply ad admire and always love learning from. Um, so Catherine, if I could turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Ethan. I really appreciate that. Um, I consider myself, perhaps after reading your book, a recovering institutionalist. I've always been somebody who prefers to work within systems in order to transform them from within. And I loved the way you defined the idea of bringing organizations back to their core values, because so often that is where we find inspiration and actually something I think we really tried to do with Wikimedia as well over the course of the past few years is to try to understand what is the value and the vision that we have set out to accomplish and does the work that we do today align with that original intention? And if so, how might we want to continue to change and involve? Um, we talk a lot about change at Wikim or sorry, trust at Wikimedia. Um, we talk a lot about the need for trust across various different uh, axes, whether that is the trust in, or we think of as confidence in the information, information integrity, or whether that's trust between the community and the Wikimedia Foundation, the community being those editors who make Wikipedia possible, um, or whether it is trust between readers and, and sort of the content itself, but trust in the institution of journalism. I'll never forget a moment in 2016 when a study came out that found that the BBC was somewhat less trusted than Wikipedia, or alternately put, that Wikipedia was more trusted than the BBC. And for me, that was not a moment to celebrate. That was actually a moment of great horror because, of course, we all live within this information ecosystem. And for pieces of it to be less trusted um, ultimately is something that harms us all. So uh, at Wikimedia, we talk as well about how change moves at the speed of trust, which I think is a really important principle. It's probably one you've heard before, um, but it is a core principle to the way that we do community building and really think about how to evolve the systems within which we work. I now have a whole new set of ways of thinking about trust thanks to, to Ethan's book, but one of the things that was true throughout my tenure at Wikimedia was really thinking about trust as a sort of intersection between relevance, competence, and confidence. Uh, you know, are we good at what we do? Are we relevant to how we do it? Um, do we care about how we do the work and do people see that care? So as, as I was preparing for our conversation today, and, and as I've been making this transition to what Ethan has called retired life, um, I think that you know, I went through and I tried to put down some thoughts on sort of how trust has worked at Wikimedia and what we might learn from it as an institution as a whole. And one of the very first things that came to mind for me is something that I've observed for a while now, particularly when in discussions with people from, from the press or from the institution of journalism, which is we come from a position at Wikimedia where we start with the idea that we are not trusted. I think that many legacy institutions, and I, whether we're thinking about very specific incorporated entities or the institution of the judiciary, the free press, the institution of suffrage as a whole, start with a position in society that they have trust and that trust is only something that can be lost rather than needing to earn it. Wikimedia, because it has always been a work in progress and actually started very much as something of an experiment, an unrealized um, expectation or a hope, a radical experiment, started from the position that we weren't trusted and we had to earn it. And I think that that's something that places us at a level of humility relative to our other stakeholders that is sort of foundational to how we approach everything. Uh, we start from the position that you should, not just as an institution, that we need to be transparent so you understand what our goals and intentions are and how we use donor resources, but also that our content should be transparent, our articles, that we should have links at the bottom of every page to citations so that people can interrogate those articles and understand those sources of trust. We give away trust to get it. That was the second thing that I, I, I thought about here, which is we don't tell people how to use Wikipedia. There's not exactly a user's manual. Everyone knows to Ethan's point that Wikipedia was very much a punchline when we first started. How could anyone write anything on the internet and it possibly be trusted? And so certainly there is this aspect that we need to earn that trust, but there is also the expectation that we simply trust readers. We trust you to use Wikipedia well and wisely. We trust you to read it critically. We trust you to be able to evaluate when it, you can have confidence in the information. Perhaps it's looking up something like your favorite pop star's discography and when you might need to go to those citations in order to learn something more deeply, perhaps about vaccines in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. We trust you as readers to be conscious 
engagers with that information. And I think that that places our readership and our editorship and our donors on the same level as us, the institution. Um, we believe that people understand our purpose as well as we do, which sort of brings me to my next thought, which is we distribute our mission. We are not the keepers at the Wikimedia Foundation of trust. We are not the keepers of the vision of Wikimedia. In fact, Wikimedia is a thing we all do together. Nothing in our vision statement about a world in which every single human can freely share in the sum of all knowledge says anything about Wikimedia itself. It says that this is a vision that we share for the world. And in fact, the more people who join that, the more resilient and robust that vision actually is. I often think about sort of the early understanding of the distributed nature of the World Wide Web. The whole purpose of it is if the link breaks, the rest of the network is able to sustain, redirect, and reroute. Wikimedia's vision works very much similarly. And I think that that institutional vision of distributing your vision, distributing your mission, distributing your pur purpose is so important because you simply can't break a distributed network. The fourth thought from my perspective is really being clear about our intentions, being clear about what our purpose is, being transparent about it with the world, because it creates a degree of self-accountability. If we say we're going to do a thing and we fail to deliver on that thing, it enables that externalized pressure that Ethan referred to, to come back and nudge us back into shape. This is true of many institutions. It's not unique to Wikimedia, but I do think that we are almost um, somewhat unique in our sort of rigor around it. Uh, the next one was really being around open around your faults. I like to joke that for all of the ways in which we worry about the sort of the integrity of content on Wikimedia, we may be one of the only publications that also maintains a running list of all the times we've been hoaxed um, or, or similarly um, had the wool pulled over our eyes. So there is an actual list on Wikipedia of English Wikipedia and other Wikipedias as well of all the hoaxes of Wikipedia. So we're very open about our faults. We like to immediately create that space for people to criticize us because when they do, that is actually an opportunity for us to learn. There's an apocryphal story about how in 2000, and I'm actually not sure if it's apocryphal, but anyway, there's a story in 2006 about how a study came out in the Journal of Nature, how well-regarded scientific publication, uh, about how Wikipedia is on average as accurate as encyclopedias, traditional published encyclopedias were at the time. And rather than say, quibble about whether we were more accurate or less accurate, Wikipedia said, can you tell us all the places where we were not accurate so that we can go ahead and fix them? So that self-reflexive um, the response to inaccuracy or the response to failure and being open about our flaws creates that opportunity for change and it normalizes the idea of an institution in constant iteration. The next thing that I thought of was really around incentivizing innovation from the margin. So we talk a lot about emergent innovation in institutions and intrapreneurs and in institutions and the ways in which we listen to citizens and how institutions can respond to citizens. But it's not just about creating that space. It's actually incentivizing it. It's giving people the confidence that when opportunity arises, when a good idea emerges, that that institution will actually adopt that good idea is it is successful in the world. And I think that's really key. It's being ready to change as an institution and being ready to adapt in response to the ways in which people need you and use you. I think of libraries as a wonderful example of this. Of course, I am on the board of GDLA and so perhaps a little partisan to libraries, but libraries have truly changed and evolved over time in their role in our public sphere to go far beyond simply being an institution of a lending institution, but an institution that is absolutely core to our democracy that offers citizens access to resources like voting and voting registration. Librarians are often at the front lines of helping people learn digital literacy skills, apply for jobs and benefits and all sorts of other functions, sometimes simply providing a warm place to rest on a cold day. Uh, so really evolving from, from sort of innovation around the margins creating space for disagreement and rules for being disagreeable. Um, it is absolutely important to not try to control the narrative and be brittle as an institution, but instead create that space where your loyal opposition can thrive. And that was sort of my next point is your, uh, Ethan, you referred to it as those who buttress your institutions by pressuring them. We really think of it as the loyal opposition. The loyal opposition is there because they believe in your institution. The last thing you want to do is to give them a reason to not believe. That is exactly what undermines that trust in the broader ecosystem, public sphere, with citizens, what have you. 
they're loyal because they believe that you have a purpose and a role to play. And it is part of that reformist function um, that creates that loyalty in that space and that confidence and that opportunity. And then my last two thoughts are really about evolving with the world. And I think Ethan spoke to this as one of the reasons why he so values Wikipedia is the opportunity for change. So as I said at the very get-go, um, our mission, our vision is this broad, ambitious world in which every single human can freely share in the sum of all knowledge. Well, in the 20 years we've been in existence, we've realized all the ways we've fallen short on that. And I'm sure we'll realize many more yet to come. These include issues such as not representing women in a way that is proportionate to their contributions to society, uh, really excluding and recapitulating Western white narratives that have excluded many different communities over time. Um, how can we continue to evolve, not just to integrate those things that we have recognized that we have excluded, but our own policies, our function, our purpose, who it is that we're trying to serve and understand that truly what we should be moving towards is the vision rather than moving away from the point of our founding. So it's not about growing from where we came from. It is growing towards something that we value. And I think that's where I would leave it is really always constantly questioning ourselves. Are we still making the difference that we hope to make? And if not, what are those barriers and why and how might we change them? It is healthy to be in a constant, not a constant perhaps, but it is healthy to always be in self-interrogation, to really check back in as an organization. And I think this exactly what Ethan said, what is it, are the original founding values and how do we come back as institutional reformists to understand that purpose, that point, and that may mean fundamentally reshaping and reshifting the way in which we do our work. So those hopefully some thoughts for, for questions and conversation. Thank you very much. I was a little distracted in that uh, in that list of things, uh, Catherine, by uh, the list of hoaxes and mistakes that were printed <laughs> in Wikipedia. It's a good I, list. I, I confess, I, I mean, I, uh, we ran corrections in the newspaper all the time, um, but we never ran them quite the way you just did. And I'm delighted to know that Théophile Figuez, an alleged major general in the Belgian army for 10 years and three months, according to Wikipedia, was dethroned on June 8th, 2020. Congratulations to you. I wanted to ask about centralization uh, versus decentralization, and then a little bit about, we also want to talk some about inequality coming out of this pandemic. You've managed at Wikipedia to do something that Ethan discusses in as a, as an ideal, the decentralization of of the system of the of the operation. Um, but the technology, by and large, seems to favor tremendous centralization, uh, really um, agglomeration in the extreme of uh, of look at Facebook and Google, of course. Uh, how how where do you think we're going with this and how many how many how many organizations other than Wikipedia that are major international players can we point to that have successfully managed to create this sort of this decentralized blockchain kind of of organization without falling into the same kind of corporate structure that we've traditionally had in, in non-internet companies. So the first thing that I would say, Alberto, is that one of, one of the bits of genius behind Wikimedia is that it is decentralized. The English Wikipedia, the French Wikipedia, the Dutch Wikipedia, these are run by entirely different teams, sometimes under entirely different rules. And in a funny way, Wikipedia is probably one of the best examples of a federated network that most people have seen, uh, which is to say that you have these related and compatible ways of sort of building sites, uh, but then you have them sort of holding hands, you know, around the larger mission. What it lets you do is have questions like, you know, should the same articles be in different language Wikipedias? I find myself periodically uh, turning to the Finnish Wikipedia. I don't speak Finnish, but I listen to Finnish accordion music. And uh, the Finnish accordion players that end up in the Finnish Wikipedia are never going to end up in the English language Wikipedia, despite the fact that it's much larger. They're much more relevant to the Finns than they are to the wider world. 
Okay, uh, but, but you're not. But you're not exactly. But you're. I'm sorry. But you're just not exactly the typical reader. But, so, but the point. But the point is that's that's how it actually works, Alberto. It, it's Wikipedia could work really, really differently, right? There could be this idea that the English language Wikipedia is the master and that right. all the other Wikipedias need to catch up with it and that they are somehow falling behind if they don't have, you know, the how many million articles that are in the English language one. That's not actually how it works. The way that it works is that each language Wikipedia is its own view of knowledge and view of what needs to go into it. So the reason Catherine sort of alluded to that is that model of decentralized but federated is the model that a lot of people right now are pursuing as a way of trying to figure out how you unseat something like Facebook. So one of the really serious challenges about Facebook is that they're somehow trying to run one social network for 3 billion people. Right. There is no such thing as a community of 3 billion people. It has never existed. It probably never will exist. What you might need instead are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of smaller social networks that people have a hand in running and governing, much as people have a hand in running and governing the individual language wikis, and then a way for them to be intercompatible and to hold hands. That is not incidentally the work that I'm pursuing over at uh, Digital Public Infrastructure over at UMass, in part because it's a model that I've seen work at Wikipedia, not just technically, but also in terms of ownership and buy-in, which is utterly critical within this. Facebook works fine, technically. It works disastrously from the perspective of community ownership, buy-in, and basic civics. And that's where these distributed models, which frankly are a ton more work, they're harder to get your head around, they're not consistent in the same way that we're used to systems being consistent, but, but that's why they're beautiful and that's why they're so important. So Catherine, if Mark Zuckerberg is on the line here, he may be listening for all I know, um, how would you tell him to copy or to model uh, Facebook in, in a Wikipedia-like way for better community? I think that Ethan actually spoke to, to this a little bit already, Alberto, in the sense that there is no single user model that scales to the size of 3 billion people. And in fact, there are all sorts of harms that happen, not just at the social level when, when you try to model out that scale, but um, also at the individual level. You end up with an incredibly homogenous sense of sort of that user identity because you're trying to create as great efficiency as possible. And so you end up with sort of the average user. And that average user looks nothing like most of us users because all, none of us are actually the average, right? It's the sort of the myth myth of the, the, the median there. Um, and so at scale, what ends up happening is none of us fit very well into the product experience of Facebook uh, because it doesn't really reflect what our needs are and it doesn't enable us to build a community in large part because it's very responsive to us as that individual. I think what Ethan is saying is that is, which is something I deeply agree with, is that I would be building for community outcomes as opposed to be being as building for individual users. The way in which Facebook does its product development, the way in which it thinks about building out new features is how sticky is it for me? How long am I on the site? How much do I engage? How much do I build my network? All of those sorts of questions. But what they're not looking at are what are the net outcomes for the communities that I'm in? What are the net outcomes for my network? How does that either strengthen my affinity with those other individuals? How does that deepen my relationship? Um, what are the sort of social outcomes of that? And then how do we govern those different, those communities in a way that is consistent with the needs of those communities? And I think that's another thing that Ethan is pointing to is Wikimedia is extraordinarily flexible around a few, a set of, of limited policies that are consistent across the whole organization, but infinitely replicable in the ways in which they're 
uh, applied. And so Wikipedia doesn't happen at scale in any sort of sense that we think of scale at the scale of the internet today. It has a few policies that are very clear that can be replicated ad infinitum across any number of different installations of a Wikipedia. And that is something that I think is really unique. You're not trying to build from the center to your point to fit everyone. What you're trying to do is give people a few sort of clear baselines that they can then use to interpret for the needs of those communities. It's actually the core of what a wiki is. A wiki is a about the simplest piece of CMS software that you could possibly find on the internet that gives you just a few clear guidelines that you can then interpret, build on, affect, adapt any way you want. And I think that that's sort of intrinsic to the core of this balance between flexibility and decentralization. Interesting. I was going to ask if you didn't, if you weren't both uh, failing to see the the grander vision of Facebook and seeing the 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 human community, the human village as the as the common bond, uh, but you're you're saying that the difference is not that the difference is that you're trying to build community rather than respond uh, to individual, if you will, selfish or or small interest uh, here. You do have uh, an editorial function that, as distributed as it is is a pretty serious affair. It's not a joke to to uh, to try to get uh, to get to try to get change. It's not easy. It's not that easy, really, to uh, uh, to try to make change. I mean, I just read about this colonel in the Belgian army. It took ten years and three months before he was debunked. Not to uh, mention what happened to Sheikh Djibouti because he uh, <laughs> he was around for fourteen. I I was going to use that one, Ethan, but I didn't dare. Uh, but thank you. There is a combination of, if you will, control and and distribution. If you're running a different kind of institution, if you're running a city government, how would you uh, how would you do that? I love the fact that in polling that we've done, and I've seen others do, libraries and the military uh, always come out uh, very very high, and I suspect. Um, it's, uh, it's because of something that I forget which one of the two of you mentioned, but the mission is clear and the function is pretty transparent. You know what they're, you know what they're going to do. You know what they, it's easy to understand. One is going to protect us. Uh, and the other one is allow us access to knowledge. And, uh, and it's a pretty simple, intuitive kind of, of function. How do we adapt to other kinds of organizations that have built-in self-interest? Any city government is looking for next election, is, has to deal with uh, labor unions, has to deal with special interest groups, has to deal with um, taxpayers, has to deal with... How, how, do, how, do you, how should they think about, how should a mayor think about the lessons in this book and in, and in your experience at Wikipedia? So it's interesting that you mentioned libraries and the military. I, I think one other thing that those institutions have in common is that it's very hard to imagine how you do the job without an institution. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to sort of imagine, you know, how do you create the value proposition of a public space that anyone is able to use, even if they're using it just to warm up, never mind, you know, access to a wealth of knowledge which is difficult for sort of individuals to accumulate and which is sort of based around sharing in the same way that, that I think with military, it's very hard to imagine how defense scales from very small scale to, to the sort of um, the level of the nation state without having institutions. They therefore both end up being institutions that we celebrate a great deal as institutions. We very much tell people to have pride in them as institutions we tend to denigrate our governments. Uh, we tend to pretend that a lot of times that we would do better if those governments did less. Um, we tend to be very suspicious in some cases about the provisioning of, of public goods and the sort of whole idea that there are things that we want to be public goods. I think both libraries and, and militaries are in some ways as, as different as you can get, but they are sort of unequivocally public goods in one fashion or another. My top level answer of how you start recovering trust in institutions is that you have to open them up and you have to open them up 
to people's participation. And then I'll give my very specific level of how I'm working on that right now. Um, I, I came out of this book on mistrust essentially saying I wanted to take my own medicine and I wanted to figure out whether there was an institution that I could personally work on reforming and making better. The one that I am personally working on reforming and making better is social media, uh, one that I think is deeply messed up. And the way that I'm doing it is trying to work in it on very, very small levels. So the first two experiments that I'm doing in this space, Alberto, one is with uh, a newspaper chain out in the mountain west that supports mostly towns of fewer than 20,000 people. And their idea is they want to have community discussions based around the local news. They want you to subscribe to the local newspaper and in the process of being a local newspaper subscriber to be a member of the community, which ends up being moderated by the journalists and by the editors. But it's beautiful to sort of watch this idea of very small communities sort of governing themselves, working on civic issues. The second is with the Massachusetts Moderators Association, which is the group of people who moderate town meetings in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that that is a participatory mode of government, but it generally happens within three hours, you know, in a high school gym. Could we use a social network to sort of spread it out over the course of a couple of weeks and actually have those legislative discussions? I actually think that social media and the ability to have serious, legitimate, moderated self-governing debate may be incredibly transformative for government on things like the city level. I think right now, a lot of processes where citizen involvement, which is almost an afterthought, could actually be pretty central to how we do these things if we built much better tools for people to get engaged with it. One of the things that I had written down in response to your question, Alberto, is I, if I was giving advice to a mayor, I would think, you know, two, two different thoughts, one of which is a really around depersonalizing institutions. And I think Ethan spoke to this a little bit with the libraries and the military. These are highly depersonalized institutions. And in fact, we reflect very negatively on when those institutions do become personalized, particularly when we think about the military. There is a strong culture of saying, you know, we do not want the leader of DOD being a member of the military. You have to actually get a congressional exemption for that. The whole idea being that this is really something that is subordinate to citizen command. And so it's a depersonalized institution sort of at its core, at least it should be, which brings me to something else, which I think is often tough in terms of intention with um, the incentive structures for a mayor, which is a mayor's incentive structure is to get reelected. It's a highly personalized role, but often the most effective institutions are those that are depersonalized in a way that enables people to really engage with sort of the clarity of policies and function rather than the peculiarities or particular whims of its leader. And so what I would actually say to that mayor is the biggest challenge for you is going to be to internalize your externalities, which is to say, Alberto, you mentioned all the frictions that come with doing something like Wikipedia, or maybe it was Ethan, you did. A high degree of friction to be able to manage such a decentralized system, all the inconsistencies, all the edge cases. But in reality, what that all that is, is that we are managing internally the frictions that are normally externalized to the people who use those systems. We are saying, we're going to take this on. We're going to try to smooth out these frictions. We're going to try to manage for all these edge cases of how you use this, how this policy appears for you in your community, how it doesn't serve you in your community. And we're going to try to come to some sort of rationalized understanding through community support, consensus building, consultation, what have you. Whereas in most institutions, when that happens, we say, tough. You got to live with it. And the reason that it was so counterintuitive for a mayor is it's very expensive to internalize those externalities and it only works over time. It works over a long period of time rather than a short period of time because you have to learn from it and adapt in a closed loop system. And so you're not going to see the outcomes right away. And unfortunately, that is just not the way in which most of our political systems work today, which have an incentive towards short termism and have an incentive towards personalization. And you could say the same about uh, public corporations, public corporations having to report quarterly. I, th I think if there's anything that I've been, the, the, the leaders of, of public companies that I've met 
would most consistently agree that the that the quarterly reporting, as well intentioned as it may be about transparency, also is uh, is a significant incentive toward very short term policies in that in that company in order to continue feeding, if you will, in order to continue feeding the beast. And in politics, if you think long term. Uh, you'd better be somebody like the former mayor of Akron who was there for, I don't know, mm-hmm. 13 terms or something like that, because otherwise you, everybody else has to run for office uh, every two or every four years. And, uh, and that just doesn't give you long enough. If the opposite, however, is the sinecure, the, the, the people who uh, who are corrupted by having all that power for uh, for way too long? So we we keep finding. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm listening to the two of you thinking. How do we decentralize a foundation? Uh, I can't think of anything that is more centralized yeah. than a foundation. Mm-hmm. I sit in the chair of the person who used to have the money. Then he went to his. Then then they went to their just rewards. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'm still sitting in their chair. Is it a, a necessarily better model to have a distributed system? And if so, how would you do it? We can take that offline if you like. <laughs> we we but, should take it offline. I mean, it, it it's interesting though, Alberta, because foundations are are a really interesting institution, right? Normally, when you're talking about an institution, you're talking about a set of rules and it just doesn't matter all that much who's in what position. And, and that's the theory behind functioning institutions, right? They should be able to function no matter who's at the head of them, right? That That's kind of how we deal with the problem of the mayor needing to be elected every two or four years. It's not perfect, but the idea is, is that the rest of the system sort of functions in there. Part of what's tricky about foundations is, is that they're small enough as institutions, that whoever is is heading it up, and and even I would say down at the level of of program officers, often matters enormously. Uh, it matters enormously in terms of priorities. It matters enormously in terms of tone, uh, and and sort of the the way in which uh, a foundation pursues its business. So it's interesting. It's kind of in between those two spaces. Normally, um, you would expect something as big as a foundation to have more of that institutional voice, but it's also got the sort of individual personality behind it. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, actually this puts you and, and Catherine in sort of an interesting place. You've both been running institutions at significant scale, but they also have a, a personal stamp on them as well. And I actually think that's really important. I think humans have a tough time dealing with institution qua institution. There's a reason why people have to adjust to a military culture where what you're responding to is the rank and not the individual. It's that we as humans are very, very used to interfacing with an individual. And I suspect that it's enormously important whoever is going to take over that seat from Catherine, even though a lot of that decision-making and a lot of the actual authority is distributed throughout the community, the board, and sort of other authorities associated with it. John, thank you for bringing us together. And Alberto, I want to thank you for so many things, um, not just the introduction, but um, for pulling so many of these different threads together over the years. Um, Very grateful for it. It's been a great ride with you. Catherine, we'll talk. Oh, I look forward to it. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.